Right, good afternoon, everyone. Why don't you take a seat? Of course, feel free to sit on this side. There's plenty of room. <laughs> um, but if you do find yourself on that side, you're particularly privileged because I wish I had some prizes for you, but I don't. Um, right, good afternoon. So, so um, it's good to be together. I'm going to be um, picking up from our series that we're having over this summertime. Over the summertime, we're in a series called Stories for the Journey, where we're going to be having standalone Sunday sermons uh, looking at the story of a particular character in the Bible, particularly so we can see what does it tell us about God as we look at this particular person's story. So that's what we're going to be doing over the summertime. And this, um, this sermon was, was, was largely prepared with children in mind, because we had children in with us this morning, and I've not made any changes. So... Um, I hope you're up for a bit of fun this afternoon. Um, we're going to look at the story of Gideon. And so before we get there, let me just give you a little bit of background so that we familiarize ourselves with where this story comes. This story of Gideon is found in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 6 to chapter 8. And the book of Judges comes after the book of Joshua, which comes after the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so, this is where we find ourselves, that God has rescued his people, Israel, the descendants of Jacob, from Egypt. And he's done so through many signs and wonders with an outstretched arm. And he's parted the Red Sea so the people of Israel could walk through the Red Sea as on dry land. And then they were brought to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, they were there for about a year, hearing God's word proclaimed from the mountain where the law was given to Moses. And after that, they were in the desert and the wilderness, wandering for 40 years or so. And then God raised up a leader, Joshua, who led them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, Canaan, a land where they were going to have an abundance, where their food was good, an opportunity for them to settle in a land that they could call their own. And they had to fight many battles when they were there, had many enemies. And they didn't fight them all together in the way that God had told them to. And actually, after Joshua died, the people of God abandoned God, turned away from him very quickly. And yet, again and again, as they found themselves turning away from God, what they found themselves turning away from was all goodness. The God who, as Glenn Scrivener puts it, is love and light uh, and, uh, and life. And so if you turn away from love and light and life, you have disconnection and darkness and death. And yet God kept on raising up judges to rescue his people and bring them back to himself. And the judges, well, they weren't exactly a kind of pinnacle of moral virtue. You know, if you read the book of Judges, it's the goriest book in the Bible, and the people that God chooses to lead aren't necessarily always great people, perhaps with the exception of Deborah, the female leader in the Judges. And so we're going to be looking at the story of Gideon. Okay, so that's where we are. Now, in chapter 6 of Judges, Israel finds itself, again, having done evil in the sight of the Lord, and they're under the oppression of the Midianites. 
For seven years, the Midianites have been coming and giving the Israelites a really hard time. You see, Israel found themselves in this good land where they could grow good food and they could expect to have a bumper harvest every year. And yet what would happen is they would do all that hard work to make all this food and get all this produce. I mean, look at this wheat. It looks fantastic. And then the Midianites would come along with their camels. And it tells us that they had camels beyond number. Like they were a plague of locusts is what is the uh, analogy that's used in uh, the judges. The reason for that is that the Midianites came and take all the food that had been harvested, but they didn't just do that. They also, their camels helped themselves to all the leftovers so that there was nothing left. And that happened year after year. A bumper harvest taken away. It was a hard time to be an Israelite. It's a bit like, for example, if I was to have this nice, homemade, prepared sandwich. And every time I'm just about to eat this sandwich, someone comes along and steals it from me. And takes a huge bite of it on the way, Gus Rosier. Normally I steal Gus's food, to be fair. But... And this happened again and again and again. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord, it tells us in verse 6 of Judges. We're not going to read the passage today. I'm just going to tell you the story. But I'd really encourage you, look at it in your own time this week. They cried out to the Lord for help. And God responds by sending a prophet. Now, a prophet is someone who brings the message of God to his people. Particularly in Old Testament times, a prophet speaks on God's behalf as if God is speaking himself. And the prophet says to the Israelites, I rescued you from Egypt. This is God speaking. I rescued you from Egypt. I rescued you from slavery. I rescued you from oppression. I am your God. And I told you not to look to other gods. And you have not obeyed. And that's the end of the prophecy. Wow, it feels heavy. Can someone just weigh that? Is that? No, that's from the Lord. That's the people faced with their situation. And is God therefore going to abandon them like they've abandoned him? Is God going to turn his back on them the way they've turned their back on him? Well, the very next person that we're introduced to is a man named Gideon. And when we're introduced to Gideon in Judges chapter 6, we find him threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, you need to know a little bit about wheat threshing and wine pressing in order to get what's going on here. So, The way that you thresh wheat is that you find a big open space and preferably a fairly breezy space because what you want to do is get the good luscious kernels of wheat and put them in a place where the wind will blow away the chaff and just leave you with the good stuff. But instead of being in a nice open place, afraid of the Midianites, Gideon was hiding in a wine press so he could do it in a wine press. And this is what a wine press looks like. It's basically... A a big descent dug into the ground where you would put your grapes and you would trample on them and all the juice would flow down into this central hole. Good place for wine pressing, terrible place for wheat threshing. It's, uh, It's like trying to play football on a tennis court. You're just not a good idea. But of course, Gideon is petrified of the Midianites because they're going to come and eat his lunch. So there he is, Gideon, doing his wheat threshing with his wine-pressing material, and the angel of the Lord comes before him. And the angel of the Lord says to him, 
The Lord is with you, O mighty warrior. And that's supposed to make us chuckle because Gideon is anything but a mighty warrior in his wine-pressing squad. Gideon, therefore, says to the angel of the Lord, it really doesn't look like the Lord is with us. It really doesn't look that way, angel of the Lord. Now, you've got to understand, the angel of the Lord in the, in the Scripture, when he speaks, it's God speaking. When the angel of the Lord is present, God is present. The angel of the Lord is kind of distinct from God, but at the same way, somehow the same as God, carrying the authority of God, the face of God. Sometimes it's called a Christophany, Christ appearing before his incarnation. And so Gideon says to the angel of the Lord, it really doesn't look like the Lord's with us. I mean, life is really hard. We get all our crops taken every year. We've heard all these great stories about a God who can part the water and, and, and bring bread down from heaven. We've heard the stories. We haven't seen anything. It's really tough. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like that? Like I've heard these stories, but it's so hard. I'm not seeing much. Actually, the life of faith can be like that. Not easy. Often we have many questions that go unanswered. God's ways are higher than us. His plans and his purposes are often beyond our understanding. Sometimes things happen in life and they ought not to try to be explained because they're beyond any explanation that's accessible to us. It can be hard. So, so Gideon protests that the Lord is with us, and yet the angel of the Lord sidesteps those protestations, and he says, go in this might of yours and save Israel. Do not I send you. And Gideon in the wine press says, who am I? I can't go anywhere. I'm a little guy from a little family in a little town, part of a little nation. Sounds a lot like Moses at the bush when the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush to send him. And Moses says, I can't go. Who am I? I can't even speak properly. And in the same way as the Lord answered Moses in the bush, the angel of the Lord answers Gideon and says, but I will be with you. Gideon has such small faith. From Far from being mighty and courageous, he's actually timid and scared. Not confident, confused. Tiny faith. Tiny. But God's word just keeps coming to him. A word of promise. Oh, I don't really know what I think about that. A word of promise. You know, but who am I? A word of promise. The Lord words him into being by keeping on speaking. And then Gideon asks for a sign to know that it really is the Lord who's going to work amongst them, that this is the Lord. And so he says, can you just wait, wait there, the angel of the Lord, I'm just going to go and do something. Angel of the Lord, he's a busy guy, he's got things to do. But yes, he waits for Gideon. And Gideon doesn't just pop out for five minutes. He goes and prepares goat stew with dumplings. This is ours. You know, to get that goat and to do all the business you need to do with a goat and then to make it into a stew... But he comes back hours later and says, oh, thank you so much, angel of the Lord, for waiting. Here's a meal. Uh, and the angel of the Lord says, can you take your goat stew and dumplings and just pour it over that rock? So he does. He pours it over the rock. 
And he doesn't seem bothered about that <laughs> at all. The fact that he's just made this stew and it's been poured over the rock. And the angel of the Lord gets his staff and he touches the rock and psh, it goes up in flames and consumes the meal. And Gideon has the fireworks that he's been hoping for. And the very next thing we read is that Gideon is petrified, absolutely terrified. The angel of the Lord has disappeared, having set up that meal, that, that watery meal in flames. And Gideon realizes he's been in the very presence of God. And suddenly, he's overwhelmed. How can I possibly stand in the presence of the angel of the Lord? I've heard the word of God. I've seen the face of the angel of the Lord who stands in the very presence of God. Woe is me. That's a common refrain for people who are in the presence of God. Think about Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, amongst the people of unclean lips. But actually the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Because... Gideon's starting to see straight. See, at that moment, he's not afraid of the Midianites anymore because he's been in the presence of God. And then another word comes from God to Gideon in his fear. And the word is, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. You shall not die. Let's just pause the story at that moment in time. I want to ask ourselves, what does this story so far tell us about God? Well, I think it tells us at least three things. Firstly, it tells us that when life is hard, it does not mean that God has left you. He is more committed to you than you could know. Not committed just to your comfort and your ease. Actually, he's committed to your ultimate good. And we may not, as I say, be able to wrap our heads around what's going on in our lives. And once again, sometimes certain things ought not to try to be explained. You just sit in the silence of it and the suffering. But actually, the Lord is more committed to us than we could ever imagine. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher too. And he has bound himself to our very being so much, which is what the incarnation is all about. The word became flesh, God with us. So when life is hard, it doesn't mean God has left you. Secondly, what we see is that God's word is powerful. It creates what it speaks. Gideon was no warrior in his winepress. He didn't feel like a warrior, he didn't look like a warrior, he didn't speak like a warrior, he didn't act like a warrior. But because God said so, he was a mighty warrior. God's word is powerful to transform and it is not limited by human weakness. As Paul puts it in Romans, God calls into existence the things that don't exist. Faith where there is no faith, hope where there is no hope, courage where there is no courage. Light where there is only darkness. Gideon was to become what God had already said he was. How? God would do it. This is the wonderful thing. It's so absolutely, ginormously releasing. 
He didn't have to go on a course. He didn't have to take warrior lessons. The word of God had come to him and was going to create that which it commands. God was binding himself to Gideon. That's what you need. That's what you need. That's what you need. You need him. And even now, his word is coming to you today. His word has come to us this afternoon in many different forms. We've just swallowed it down and drunk it in at the Lord's table. The word of his promise, the word of his action on our behalf, the word of the Lord which creates something out of nothing, speaking promises, hear and trust. And thirdly, what we see from this passage so far is that being in the presence of God naturally causes fear as its initial response. Before him, we are laid bare. When you're in the presence of God and see him as he really is, and this can happen time and time again, you get overwhelmed by the sense of his majesty and say with the psalmist, what is man that you're mindful of him? The power of God, the holiness of God, the vastness of his righteousness and his goodness and his perfection before which you can only fall to your knees and say, I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. But actually, it is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord, because it is the center of reality which causes every other fear to be put in its rightful place. And actually, to experience a sense of the fear of God, and I can attest to this several times in my life, when I look back, I realize it's a blessed place to be because only when the gracious presence of God has already drawn near does the fear of God come upon a person. If you're brought to a place of the fear of the Lord, it's because you're already in his gracious intention towards you. Throughout the Bible, people encounter God and their first reaction is fear. And the first word of the Lord to them is, fear not. Think about those shepherds watching their flocks by night and the angels come with the presence of God and they say, don't be afraid. Or outside the tomb of the resurrection. Throughout the Bible, people encounter God in fear, and his word to them is fear not. For Gideon, fear came after he'd already been given God's gracious promises again and again. So what happened was, God's gracious promises spoken, revelation comes, fear is the response, God's gracious promises are spoken again. It starts in grace, it finishes in grace. It's all the action of God. And so at the moment that you fear, you are already held in his hands. And it liberates you from every other fear. This is good news. This is good news. This is a good news story, Gideon's story. Let's go back to the story then. So, Gideon has encountered the angel of the Lord. He's seen the majesty of God. And so he's starting to fear aright. And having realized that he's in the presence of the living God and that the living God is active amongst his people, he knows the first thing he needs to do is destroy the worship places of the other gods that are being worshipped by his family and his people. He's got to destroy the worship places of Baal. But he's still, you know, he's still a pretty timid guy, Gideon. So he does it at night time. And he takes his mates with him, and he tiptoes along. And actually, Gideon's name in Hebrew is Hacker. That's what it means. It means that he's a chopper. 
So he gets his his axe. (laughs) We want to say hack all the time. And he hacks down the Asherah poles, hacks down the worship place of Baal, and then goes and hides. And um, the people are not very happy about it. The people want revenge for the sake of Baal. And then, fortunately for Gideon, his dad speaks up on his behalf, and it's nice to have a dad that will do that for you every now and again. And the dad says, Baal can look after himself. You know, if Baal's a real god, then he'll take care of Gideon. You leave Gideon alone. And then it tells us, towards the end of chapter 6, that the, the Holy Spirit came and clothed Gideon, which tells us that the Lord was about to do something through Gideon that he could not do, Gideon could not do of his own strength. God was empowering him to do something. And the next thing we see is that Gideon gets a trumpet. Yeah, Richard, could you hear this? And blows it. And it was of such authority, like that particular trumpet blast, that thousands of men came to, draw, to join him from around the, the camp to battle the Midianites who were on their way again to take some more of the harvest. And with his army gathering around him, Gideon suddenly feels a little bit nervous again, a little bit... I can't, I can't resist the pun, a little bit sheepish. So what he does is, he gets a fleece. And he says, God, I really need you to help me here. The Midianites are coming. They've got camels that outnumber anyone's ability to count. I need to know you're going to be with me. If you're going to save me, if you're going to save me and the people of Israel through me, then I'm going to leave this fleece out at night. And what I want you to do, God, is just to make sure the fleece is soaking wet with dew in the morning, but all the grass around it is dry, and then I'll know. So he goes away, and he comes back in the morning, and sure enough, the fleece is absolutely soaking with dew, enough to fill up a whole bowl full of water, but the grass is absolutely dry. And Gideon thinks, I need something more. So... Actually, God, please could you, don't get cross, but please, this time around, can I put the fleece out again? But, but this time, when I go, when I come back in the morning, could the fleece be just bone dry, but every bit of grass around it be wet? And so he goes, and he comes back, and he touches the grass, and it's absolutely soaking with dew, but the fleece is completely dry. And in that way, Gideon knows God is true to his promise. He's going to fight for him. Now, let's pause the story again there. What does this tell us about Gideon? Well, it tells us that Gideon is very easily overwhelmed and very prone to doubt and to fear, even if he's already had an amazing encounter with God, even if he's already had success, Gideon the hacker, then very quickly he can go to being Gideon frightened and doubtful. Does anyone else relate to that? Yeah, I do, me, my labor. Gideon's just very frail. Actually, you know, we can find that our sense of faith changes with our diet, with our mood, with our circumstances. Sometimes we can feel more faithful than at other times. And God, how does he respond to Gideon? Well, He's so patient with him. He's already waited for like six hours for him to cook some goat. And now he's entertaining this fleece thing. 
And the thing is, God knows Gideon's weakness. Now, when people ask for a sign from the Lord, that doesn't normally go down so well in the Scripture. And sometimes in kind of Christian parlance, we can talk about things like, I'm just going to lay down my fleece. And that's really not a great analogy because this wasn't a moment of faith. This was a moment of doubt, really, from from Gideon. Not something to be kind of followed as an example. But the Lord knew his heart. He knew he was a weak man. He knew he was a man who wanted to trust him but was just so battling with his fear and his sense of self-insufficiency. His eyes were so much on himself, he just wasn't seeing God. So God met him in his need and reassured him by doing exactly what he'd asked him to do, graciously meeting him with those signs. Do you know, God is the one who begins our faith and sustains our faith. It's his work in us. And by his grace, in a way different to the fleece thing, He gives us signs that we can look at and experience and take in which sustain our faith. Baptism and communion. These are things we can enter into and lay hold of and in so doing, see the promises of God which have come to us and enter into them and have his word confirmed afresh to us. That's why we take communion every week on a Sunday here. It's to to once again take in the promises of God, receive that sign. That's why if you're a follower of Jesus and you've not been baptized, I'd really encourage you, be baptized. Receive that. It's not something you do, it's something you receive from the Lord. And we'd love to help you with that, if that is you. Let's go back to the story then. So Gideon now, his fleece was wet and then it was dry. He's confident in God. And so he gathers his army of 32,000 people. That's a big, impressive army. Too big, too impressive. God knows that the Israelites are so prone to thinking that they're self-sufficient that if they're not careful, they'll think they can defeat the enemy themselves and that will be terrible for them because they'll turn away from the God who is love and light and, and life again. And all they'll find is darkness and death and despair. And so God is going to show them that he is the one who rescues them. He's the one who fights for them. He's the one they need. Can I have my soldiers come up, please? I think you know who you are. Yes, Angus. Yes, Abby, thank you. And Joe. Right, so what what we had was an army of 32,000 impressive Israelites. Just see if you sit here for for a second, Gussie. Yeah, I'll get you back there in a minute. Um, Just come in a bit, thank you. So you can see very impressive soldiers here. But actually, some of the soldiers were a bit afraid about the idea of going to battle. And so God said to Gideon, just tell them if anyone's afraid, they can go home. And um, I think you can see Angus Rose, who is actually petrified. So Angus, is, you can go home. Well done, Gus. And actually, Gus represents two-thirds of the army. So 22,000 decided they're going to follow Gus home. Just to have it on record, Gus would be the last man standing normally. But on this occasion, he's gone home. Um, so t- t- so 10,000 are left. But still, the Lord says, that's too many. So we're going to find another way to whittle down this army. And they're thirsty, so we're going to take them to a river. Can you come around the back here, guys, please? And uh, there's two types of drinkers in the world. Um, There are some who get by a a river, and they just kneel down and put their face in because they're so thirsty. That's one variety of drinker. Okay. (laughs) And they're no good in battle. So that kind of drink, that that drinker can go home. But there's another type of drinker that just laps it up 
and, uh, and puts it to mouth and drinks carefully. Um, that's the drinker you want. And so this is our model soldier, Abby King. Can we just give Abby King a round of applause? But there's, um, there was only 300 Abby Kings. 300 lappers, so many kneelers. And so Gideon found his army went from 32,000 to 300. 300 to take on the countless Midianites. And yet in the story at this point, it doesn't seem like Gideon has second thoughts at all. He's, he's learned to trust the Lord. The Lord's word has had its effect in him. It's powerful. But the Lord still knows him. The Lord still knows what Gideon's like. He still knows that Gideon is so prone to that kind of doubt. And so the Lord says to him, even before he's had a chance to express any concern, the Lord says, Gideon, sneak down to where the Midianites are camping. Midianites are camping in this long valley, steep slopes either side, tents beyond counting. Sneak down there, bring a friend with you, and listen. You're going to hear something that's really going to help you. So Gideon and his friends sneak down. They go through the bushes, beyond the trees, keeping as quiet as possible. And they pitch up towards a tent and put their ear to the tent. And what they can hear is a Midianite soldier speaking to his friend about a dream that he's had last night. And the dream goes like this. I saw a barley loaf rolling down the hill. And the barley loaf hit a tent so hard that it turned the tent over upside down. Strange dream. Probably nothing, isn't it? But his friend said, oh no, you know what this means. It can only mean that the wheat-growing Israelites are going to destroy the tent-dwelling Midianites. And fear spreads through the camp. And Gideon's hearing all of this, and he's absolutely delighted. Yes! And what's his first reaction? Praise God. His first reaction recorded in the scriptures is he worships the Lord. He is faithful. Forever God is faithful. Forever God is strong. Forever God is with us. Forever. And the next thing he does, he goes to his friends, the 300 left, and he says to them, God is giving the enemy into your hands. His first word, praise God. His second word, People of God, God is with you. He doesn't say anything about himself. It's conspicuously missing any reference to himself in all of this. Gideon has stopped thinking so much about himself. He's been freed from the self-centered focus that brought so much fear and so much doubt and freed now to look at the Lord who brings so much faith and courage and to think about the Lord's people. God has increased, Gideon has decreased. Faith and courage has increased, doubt and fear has decreased. And all of it driven by the living and active word of God. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's battle time. And what Gideon does is he takes his 300 men and he splits them up into three and he stations them around the valley. 100 there, 100 there, 100 there. And they haven't got any weapons with them. No swords, no shields. Instead, what they've got is a trumpet. And they've got a clay pot and a flaming torch. And Gideon says, when I give you the word, just copy what I do. Okay? 
So you've got to imagine the scene. The deep, dark valley. Absolutely silent in the middle of the night. Maybe an odd owl here and there. Otherwise, nothing. Pitch black. And then all of a sudden, Gideon jumps out with his 100 men, and the other hundreds follow. And they smash the clay pots. And they pull out their um, torches in one hand, and they blow their trumpets in the other. Have we got any trumpeters? Excellent. Joe's got a better trumpet than all of you. From the deadly silence of night, there came all this noise and all this flashing of lightning, and the Midianites suddenly are woken up, and it all reverberates around the valley, and they're completely disorientated by it. What on earth is going on? I mean, has anyone ever been in that situation? Um, Last year, we were at the Catalyst Festival the first night, huge thunderstorm right underneath it, and it's frightening. Flash, flash, bang, bang. Similar to that in this valley. And the Midianites are so disorientated, they they trample all over each other, and they start turning on each other and fighting each other, and in the end, killing each other and defeating themselves. And Gideon chases down the rest of the Midianite army, (coughs) and he wins a mighty battle. And who is the hero of the story? Is this the story all about Gideon? No. This is the story all about God and the faithfulness of God to someone like Gideon, but not just Gideon, all the people. God is mighty, God is active, God fights for us, and God is faithful. And God nearly always uses the small and the unimpressive to accomplish his mighty works, like 12 disciples, or like a few women who are given and trusted the good news that Jesus is alive to show that he is the giver, the one that we need to protect us from being deceived into thinking that human potential is the answer to all of our problems. What does this tell us about Gideon? With eyes on himself, it was all fear and doubt. With eyes on the Lord, it was all promise, which leads to faith and courage. I'm afraid Gideon's story doesn't end so great because he continues to curve back in on himself and look away from the Lord. Ends up making something called an ephod out of all the gold that he won in battle and that became the object of worship for all the people. Worship the gold of battle rather than worshipping the God of the battle. And he made life decisions which weren't so good but despite his failings, God remained faithful to him and his people. So what does Gideon's story tell us? Gideon's story tells us that God is faithful, that God's word is powerful, that his promises are sure, that he is strong when we are weak, and he fights our battles for us. People of God, as we finish, this truth of who God is is revealed ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Word of God, spoken to you and to me. It says in 2 Corinthians, all God's promises are found in Him. He is the great gift, the premier promise given to you, totally committed to you. 
He is the one who has fought the battle that you have not the resources to fight. No matter how big your resources are or how small they are, no matter how impressive your life might be or how unimpressive it might be, sin and death and evil are enemies too big for you, too big for me. But on the cross, Jesus has destroyed them. He's destroyed sin. He's destroyed death. He's destroyed evil, triumphing over them and giving us his perfect record, his eternal life, his matchless goodness to be received as a gift, spoken over you, the promise of what he's done. And one day the power of that victory won on the cross will fill the universe and there will be no more room for struggle because Christ will be all in all. The resurrection guarantees it. But for now, we live in the time of resting in the promise. And you need to hear that promise again and again and again, like Gideon, the word coming to you. Remember your God. Look to your God. Look away from yourself. Look to Jesus. He fights for you. He is with you. He's covenanted himself to you. He's yours. He speaks over you. As it tells us in Hebrews 12 too, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In him and in him alone we trust. Can I pray for us? And we're going to finish there. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for the person of Jesus Christ, your precious, beloved, eternal Son, our righteousness, our Lord, our God, and our Savior. Thank you that the Bible says that all of the Bible is about him. And we thank you that he's given to us so that when we find ourselves in battles too big for us, we can look away from ourselves and look to him. Thank you that, God, you are gentle to us in our weakness. Thank you for that little line in the scriptures that say, be merciful to those who doubt. Thank you that you, O oh God, are merciful to those who doubt. Thank you that we don't drum up our faith by looking within. Thank you it's pulled out of us by the word of God that comes from outside. Thank you that you are faithful to every one of your promises. And thank you your word does not return to you empty. It accomplishes that which it's sent out for. So I pray for each and every person in this room. May faith and hope and love grow deeply and strongly by the power of the word of the living God who is faithful to every one of his promises. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.